Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this privilege, this honor of gathering together as family in a faith that you've provided, a unity that you've provided from eternity past, Father, a unity that glorifies you in time. Father, thank you for surrounding us, protecting us, ensuring that all glory and honor point towards you, Father, rightfully so. Thank you for educating us. Thank you for training us up in Holy Scripture. And thank you for sanctifying us as we leave behind the remnants, the vestiges of the old sinful life, Father. We still sin and we confess to you, Father, that this is true, but we know also and our great hope is in you and in eternal life that we received at salvation. Father, thank you for your gifts. We pray for those that can't be with us this morning, that are still ill. And we also pray for those that are ill in the most drastic, severe way as unbelievers. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a morning like this even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, God sees the heart, but the world sees the choices we make. This is part four. Uh, I want to start off by sharing um, something from uh, the individual that's going to come out next year from India, Rajesh, which is Madhava's son. <clears throat> he Skyped this to me the other day. I just want to share it with you. He was just sharing. Um, and Joe, you remember this. Just where their compound is and where they live, it's destitute really destitute. People are, you know, by all intents and purposes, broke. And they do whatever it takes just to live, uh, young and old. Um, so uh, he wrote this to me, I'm assuming, and you'll collect uh, the context here, but he wrote this to me the other day, I think, when he was out and about. So he said, today I saw a very old woman walking with the help of a wooden stick, and I was amazed the way she was working at that age collecting garbage, plastic bottles, and some used disposal glasses. She will take and sell it in the recycle unit. With that, she will survive for another two days. That is how she's leading her life. I felt really bad and asked her her whereabouts. She said, I work as long as my body supports me. Sometimes, some people give me a small token, a penny. So I gave her a 50 rupees bill, I assume, or I don't know what that is, if it's a bill or a coin, but I gave her 50 rupees and said, take care, Grandma. <laughs> she replied uh, to me, I will have no problem because people like you and my Lord Jesus will look after me. I was shocked. I did not expect that answer. I didn't tell her that I am a Christian. She said to me, see, young man, you don't know me, but you came to me and helped me. This happens only because you have Jesus in your heart. I was speechless. She also reminded me of a verse, it is God who judges. He brings one down, he exalts another, Psalms 75, 7. It is a great experience anyway, by Rajesh. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Uh, it just puts everything into perspective, doesn't it? It really does. As he sometimes does, God woke me up in the middle of the night, Friday evening at around 3 a.m. Why? To read my Bible, of course. He sort of does one. I, th I swear he does this. I roll this way. He goes, no, you're not going to get comfortable. And I have to roll that one. He says, no. And he says, I go back and forth. I'm like, okay, I'm up. What do you want? Read your Bible. <laughs> Anyways. So I got up. I read my Bible, 3 a.m. That's usually what he has me do. Apparently, uh, he has deemed odd times like that the best time to get me to pay attention to him. I suppose if I were a better pupil, I'd be getting more sleep, huh? 
Never said I was perfect. In any case, let's start off this morning with a passage from the book he sent me to at 3 a.m. Saturday morning. Go to Acts 16, 1. Acts 16, verse 1. Acts 16, verse 1. <clears throat> 16, 1. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of. In other words, he had a good name. He was well spoken of had a good name by the brethren, the brethren, of course, are Jews, who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, there's a lot going on in this passage, behind the scenes, let's call it, that we can certainly relate to even today. First, Timothy is of mixed heritage, half Jewish on his mom's side, half Gentile on his dad's. Now, this would have given Timothy an advantage, if you would, in the sense that he was connected by birth with two cultures and societies, meaning, practically speaking, that he would have had a seat at both tables, Jewish and Gentile. Arguably, though, the more difficult group to gain approval from would have been the Jews. A much more exclusive group. And as the passage states in Acts 16.2, he was well spoken of by the brethren, the Jews, who were in Lystra and Iconium. In other words, as our previous two series prepared us for consideration, Timothy possessed something very valuable. A good name. Timothy possessed something very valuable. A good name. The second thing that is very interesting about this passage relative to our recent studies is the last verse. Look at verse 3. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. What we see here is a recognition by Paul that a good name is an important facet of ministering to others. A good name is an important facet of ministering to others. And this holds true in just about every sense of the idea, down to the obstacles that exist because of the ignorance of others. Down to the obstacles that might exist because of the ignorance of others. In the case of Timothy, Paul knew that in order to maximize efficiencies on his missionary trips, it would be better if Timothy do something unnecessary as far as he was concerned, but for the weak. It was good. It would be better if Timothy did something that was not necessary, but would help ministering to the weak, the Jews especially, who were weaker in the faith. It's not that Paul's or Timothy's hearts were bad. Rather, it was that the world sees the choices we make. And if they're against the weaker understandings, they stumble. If our choices are against weaker understandings, others stumble. And in this case, the weak in view of the Jews who still held fast to their customs and beliefs that circumcision was mandatory up here in the board. Timothy's good name. Paul recognized that Timothy's good name among the Jews was advantageous to his ministry. He had Timothy circumcised to minimize social kickback due to the persistent weaknesses of the Jews and their adherence to their religious practices. 
Paul recognized this. He understood the value of a good name. And he understood that there were weaknesses that he was going to have to minister to and it would be better that Timothy was circumcised, even though it was totally unnecessary by God's standards and by his own convictions. And I think this is a perfect example for all of us. There are going to be many times in our lives where we walk into a situation that is vastly different than our own cultural choices. And this can be even going to, say, someone else's church to go to, say, a wedding or a marriage or, or a funeral or something like that. Our flesh tends to crawl out of its skin a little because the environment feels different. It feels different than the one we used to here, say, at North Christian Church. And the only differences, for example, might be in something like church ordinances. They might have a different leadership structure. They may go about service differently. They may do communion service, you know, all the time. Who knows? But their ordinances might be different, and it's unsettling. But, you know, it's funny because those things aren't actually spelled out in the Bible specifically. Church ordinances are not spelled out in the Bible. So just because we may think that North Christian Church is perfect, which it is, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Everyone's like, wow, you too? Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> we, just have, we have a leaky pool that proves otherwise. I'm just saying. Can't even get a baptism, right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. But just because we think a certain way about our own church doesn't mean that we can go waltzing into someone else's church and point out things we deem wrong. The point of the passage we are reading right here is if even if something is wrong, even if something is wrong, say circumcision for religious purposes, we need to keep our focus on the end goal. In Paul's closing remarks in Romans, he described this very thing. Go to Romans 14, 19. 14, 19. towards this tremendous treatise, towards the end of this tremendous treatise on things like justification by faith and what have you. Paul sort of begins wrapping things up and he speaks to this. <clears throat> so what shall we pursue, in other words? Should we walk out our front doors every morning, you know, equipped with offensive weaponry? Should we be, um, you know, should we just have like those things, you know, you pick up trash with those little nails on the end of a stick? Is that what you'd use, just like poke other Christians and say, you're out of line. You, you're out of line. I don't think so. Or should we be poking unbelievers? You're going to hell. Burn, suffer. You deserve it. <laughs> I deserve it. Last time I checked. Romans 14, 19. So then we pursue the things which make for peace in the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things are indeed clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything. What's that word say? Anything. anything. Ryan, you're the only one that can read, apparently. What's it say? Anything. Thank you. I can't yell, so I need your help. Anything by which your brother stumbles, up here on the board. Anything by which your brother stumbles. The word anything covers a lot, doesn't it? In fact, since God isn't a God of confusion, 1 Corinthians 14.33, we, right, we may rightly conclude that this is dogma. We must always remain cognizant of what may make others stumble. Always. If we're in a position to see the distinction, we ought to remain cognizant of it always and pursue the things that produce peace, especially in the body of Christ. Especially in the body of Christ. Up here on the board, I'm going to steal from McDonald on this. 
on this particular passage. It is better to forego one's legitimate rights than to have to condemn oneself for offending others. One who avoids stumbling others is happy, is a, should say, is a, is a happy person. Again, it's better to forgo one's legitimate rights than to have to condemn oneself for offending others. One who avoids stumbling others is a happy person. And so I hope you see the connection to a good name, even. So, consider our message title, as of late, God Sees the Heart, but the world sees the choices we make. You may say to God, thank you for approving of this liberty that I have. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, for giving me this liberty because I'm set free to enjoy it. And God may respond, you're most welcome. Enjoy it. However, a weaker person who can't see your good heart before the Lord may not agree with your conviction on the subject. Again, a weaker person who can't see your good heart before the Lord may not agree with your conviction on the subject. And therefore, it makes them stumble. And conversely, if they respect you enough as a person, they may take your word for it. Because after all, they are weak. But that's the problem. They may take your word for it and partake in whatever activity it is that you find no fault in before God. However, their consciences burn as a result of their convictions telling them that this activity is wrong. So in other words, it's like I've been teaching you for a long time now. Have your own convictions, right? Don't take my word for it. Don't do precisely what I do because it's possible in your head it's not right. It's wrong. And just because the pastor does it doesn't mean it's right for you. I may see it as a liberty. I may have a conviction, a good one, before my, the holy God of the universe that God says it's good for you. But he may say to you, it's not good for you. And so don't take my word for it. Have your own convictions before the Lord. That is what is important. And that's what we see here. So, in that case that I described, you end up with one person being right before God, you, and another believing they are doing wrong before God, them. As paradoxical as it may seem, God is unhappy with both of you. He's unhappy with both of you. And if Luke 12.48 is true, and it is, then God is actually more offended by you than the weaker believer. Because you should know better in a position of strength. Luke 12.48, part B, up here on the board. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. In other words, if you are able to make those distinctions, then you're now responsible to that. And as a stronger believer in that situation, you may be the weak one once in a while, but in that situation, you were the stronger person, and you should have known better. It's like when you're, you know, when you're in a family of kids, and you're the oldest, who gets in trouble for doing something stupid? You should have known better. <laughs> but we all did it. Yeah, but you're like five years older than them. Your siblings are dumb. You, you, you know, you know better. Right? It's the same thing. It's the same thing. James wrote about this topic. We've seen this how many times now? James 4.17, Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it's a sin. Now, this is very interesting. This is why Paul wrote what I believe to be one of the most powerful passages regarding personal conviction in the whole Bible. 
Let's continue where we left off. Look at verse 21, Romans 14, 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything, anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. Have your own conviction. God's going to hold you to your personal convictions. And just to net that whole thing out, and this is a huge principle, so I hope you're all awake. I hope you had your coffee. It's a sin to violate one's conscience. Let that sink in. It's a sin to violate one's conscience, one's convictions before the Lord. And as we just saw, Paul said, yours is different than mine. And mine is different than yours. Is there a common thread? Of course there is. We call that doctrine. But everybody's circumstances and everybody's at a, is different and everybody's at a different place spiritually. And there may be some things that are good for you that aren't good for me and vice versa. And so our individuality counts a lot. I remember doing a, um, a poll once or a, a query on my blogs, which I don't even know how many there are now. Probably There's hundreds of them. And um, individuality, because I tagged them all with at least like three or four to five tags. You know, what is it? Salvation, conviction, perseverance. Individuality was like right at the top of the list. So for whatever reason, this ministry it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me because look at how much personal digging we do. Individuality um, in this ministry has been a huge theme. And I'm not surprised. And this is one of the key elements of individuality, of understanding what the Lord wants for you as an individual. It's a sin to violate your own conscience. Even if someone else, oh, well, the, you know, the pastor's you know, saying this and doing that over there, well, that doesn't mean it's right for you. Or so-and-so, who I really respect, is doing it over there. That doesn't mean it's good for you either. Just sharing now. I don't know why he keeps making me do this, but the point in the board has been one of the greatest areas of learning for me personally. I mean, just to be totally transparent for a moment, and I'm hoping most or all of you can relate to what I'm about to share. I do. I don't want it to be about me. I want it to be about you, so I hope you can relate. I used to think that life would be easier if everyone just, you know, hurried up and snapped into biblical principles and priorities. You know, it's like, let's go. I've already taught it once. Let's go. I get it. You get it. It's right here. <laughs> but I've learned that that was just me being a stiff, being immature in my own faith. I remember my first leadership positions um, in the service, let's say, and then in industry, etc., and then even in ministry. And until the point on the board sunk into my thick skull, I was a bit militant about, let's say, expediting people's falling into ranks and obeying the rules. Like, let's go. What are we waiting for? Well, it turns out that even God isn't that militant. <laughs> Let me explain. It's true that his viewpoint is perfect and immutable. But he knows that mere humans will never see things the way he does. He tells us so in Isaiah 55, 8. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. You know how profound that is? Just spend a whole afternoon on that alone. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. Just, it's mind-blowing. So he doesn't 
you know, he knows that we're never going to see what he sees, at least not completely. Um, nor does he apparently expect us to. His mandate is the one on the board. He says, I'm going to give you a measure of faith. I'm going to give you a thing called a good conscience. And my spirit, me, God, is going to convict you of right and wrong. For you. For you personally. If you go against my will, you're sinning. I think this is a, another key aspect of possessing a good name. It's one of the things like, that I so respect. And don't do this just to try to gain this kind of approval with other people, because that's ridiculous. But I really respect somebody who's willing to say, I have a different conviction on that. I see things slightly different. Even if they say they read the same Bible, I say, hey, good for you. You've got to have your own convictions before the Lord. I'm not trying to be your God. My job is to lead you to Holy Scripture. What the Lord and what the Holy Spirit does in your soul once you get there, that's between you and God. I don't want you to have my convictions because sometimes mine are goofy and they're certainly unique given my life. So all of this is part of possessing a good name. A good name is someone who has their own convictions even. Up here on the board. A good name begins with integrity to one's good conscience. Said conscience as a function of faith. For remember, God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Each individual, in other words. Romans 12.3 so, said conscience as a function of faith is very personal, unique. God holds us accountable to the good conscience that He's chosen to give to us as individuals. He doesn't hold you accountable to my good conscience. He holds you accountable to your conscience. And if you keep on, I don't want to digress, but if you keep on doing stuff that's against His will, the Bible calls it searing your conscience, almost like taking something functional and pure and holding it on a griddle and going until it's scar tissue and stimuli can't get through the same way anymore. That's the searing of the conscience. Do that enough through sinning, willful sinning, lifestyle, etc., etc., evil. Your conscience begins to numb out. That's a very bad place to be. It's a very bad place to be. Because God holds you accountable to your own conscience that He's put there as an individual. So a good name begins with integrity to one's good conscience. Said conscience as a function of faith is very personal, unique. God holds us accountable to the good conscience that He's chosen to give us as individuals. And this does take a while to swallow if you come from a religious background like I did. Um, in religiosity... Everything's about rules, right? Just give me the rules. I'm an overachiever. Okay? Just give me the rules. I'll do them better than another guy, than the next guy. I will exceed. I will do better than my peers. That's what religion is. That's how it's set up. And it appeals to the flesh because that's what the flesh wants. Give me a ladder I can climb. And I'll climb it faster than the guy to my right and to my left. And I'll be the winner. And God will be pleased. That's what religion supposes. Everything's about rules. Rules that ultimately weigh us down and burden us with ungodly thoughts about ultimately how we can't seem to measure up. Because all the world does is bring in another person that's really fast, like some super athlete that goes flying up the ladder way faster than you. You never win if that's the game. It's rigged. So at the end of religiosity, we realize that we never measure up. And that's an insult to God, given that He's the one who gives us each a measure of faith. 
Has he failed to uh, give us enough to measure up? If God's the one that fills up your cup, and you say, I never measure up, what are you saying to the one who filled up your cup? You didn't give me enough. That's in complete contradiction to my grace is sufficient for you. I'll never measure up. Where does that even come from? That does not come from God. That comes from the world system. Hold your thumb. Go to Luke 11.46. Luke 11.46. This also is part of uh, possessing a good name, understanding that you do measure up as far as God is concerned. I mean, it's God's job to sanctify you after all. So wherever you're at in your sanctification, that's where you're supposed to be. So to say you don't measure up is an insult to God. But see, religious people don't want you to know that. <laughs> because if you understand that, all of a sudden you're free. You jump off the ladder and go, what the heck was I just doing? Why did I spend all that energy climbing a stupid ladder? Look how high up I am. <laughs> you just jump off. Luke eleven forty six. Religious people don't want you to think that way. But he said, woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear. While you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Go to verse 52. Verse 52. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. All right, go back to Romans 14, 21. That's just a quick picture of what religion looks like. People weighing you down with rules and burdens that they don't even, or they're incapable of keeping. Romans 14, 21. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Again, our point up here on the board, it's a sin to violate one's conscience. That's, a, that's something you all need to think about. It's a sin to violate one's conscience. Again, a key aspect of possessing a good name, a key aspect of possessing a good name, why did, I, did this just go out? Is that out back there? Is it just a... Excuse me. Boy, we are under a major attack. I don't know what's going on, guys, back there, but... Oof. What are you guys doing? It's a sin to violate one's conscience. A key aspect of possessing a good name is integrity. Integrity to what, though? I mean, I would argue that mobsters have unbelievable integrity. They're ungodly, but they uphold their own laws, their own way of life with the utmost integrity. But they're evil. So <laughs> there has to be integrity to something good up here on the board. A good name begins with integrity to one's good conscience. Said conscience as a function of faith God's the one who gives us faith, after all, is very personal, unique. God holds us accountable to the good conscience that He's chosen to give to us as individuals. So, if we step back now, what is the Spirit trying to convey to us this morning, and even in this, this series? Well, our biggest hint begins with our message title. God sees the heart, but the world sees the choices we make. So you see this dichotomy, this duality. Uh, sometimes they agree, sometimes they don't agree. They have two viewpoints here. God sees the heart, but the world sees the choices we make. So I just want to get a little analytical for a moment with you uh, as a critical thinking exercise uh, up here on the board. And I hope you can see that. Maybe if you can, I'm going to describe it anyways. 
Again, there are two distinct viewpoints in view, just in our message title. God sees the heart, but the world sees our choices. According to the rules of permutation, sorry for the big word, but that's what it is, that leaves us with four basic options in view. For starters, what if God sees something as good and the world sees something as good? Well, if we both see something good, ministry is most fruitful. That's what Paul was doing with Timothy. I'm going to have you circumcised, even though you don't have to be, and these people are clinging to things that are you know, not really necessary. I'm going to have you circumcised so they see it as good, we see it as good, so it's good. So ministry sort of flourishes. What if God sees something as good, but the world sees something as bad? We might have to withhold exercising liberties. God says to you, hey, you can have a glass of wine. Don't get drunk. That's dissipation. But you can have a glass of wine. But if your best friend over here you're trying to evangelize is an alcoholic, maybe you shouldn't. Just saying. Maybe you shouldn't tempt them. So we might have to withhold exercising liberties in that case. How about if God sees something bad, but the world sees something as good? Well, if we follow that path, we are acting as friends of the world. That's no good. And then if both parties see things as bad, the only thing I can come up with is, what are we doing? <laughs> Maybe we're already drunk. <laughs> right? You know what I'm saying? Intoxicated with something, our lusts, uh, whatever it is we're doing. Whatever it is we're doing is not good by anybody's account. So I don't know what to say about that. I just have LOL in my notes. For real. <laughs> what are we doing at that point? Just as a disclaimer, please do not make a doctrine out of the slide on the board. It's just a way to navigate four possibilities. And, you know, learn a little deductive reasoning from computer engineering theory in the process. I'm just saying. <laughs> nice little propeller head up there. Huh? Just being silly, but I hope you get the point the Spirit's making here, appear on the board. On our message title, he's always perfect with his titles, of course. God sees the heart, but the world sees the choices we make. It's important, listen, please. It's important, really important, that we understand the dynamics of living among other individuals as a part of God's plan. We ought never judge others for stumbling. Rather, we ought to focus on not being the cause. Again, we ought never judge others for stumbling. Rather, we ought to focus on not being the cause. That's our focus. We're not judges. We can judge something rightly. We can say, well, that's out of line from my perspective. I think that's what God wants out of you. But our main focus is to not be the cause of stumbling in others. And that's what love is. That's what love looks like. I don't want to make you stumble. I want to build you up. Am I always going to do that? No. Because I'm weak and I have a flesh. And so do you. But that's what love looks like, as far as God is concerned. He wants you to look out, even at your neighbors who might be horrible unbelievers, and understand that they are individuals in the eyes of God. That's what He wants you to know. And that you have a good conscience of your own, and that He gave it to you in a very personal way. And He wants you to abide by that good conscience. Otherwise, it's a sin. And if your good conscience says, I shouldn't do this thing because it's going to make my neighbor stumble, and you do it anyways, that's a sin. So we ought to focus on not being the cause of stumbling in others. And that's what Paul was doing. That's how we started off with Acts 16. See how it works? He wakes me up at 3 a.m. I'm 40-something minutes into a lesson. We're still talking about what he woke me up to read. See how he works? People ask me, how do you know how to teach? Or what's the Spirit say to you? I just shared it with you. That's how he works. Sometimes he slaps me really hard. Sometimes it's gentle. 
but this is how we get from point A to point B as a congregation. This is how he leads us. It's important that we understand the dynamics of living among other individuals as part of God's plan. We ought never judge others for stumbling. Rather, we ought to focus on not being the cause. This is love. Romans 12, 9-18. We'll get there in a moment. If we ever lose sight of what love is meant to be, we ought look at what Jesus, the Word, has to say about it. Furthermore, we ought to seek understanding of His disciples, for example. Go to Romans 12, verse 9. Romans 12, verse 9. What about love? We never stray too far from it, obviously. Romans 12.9 Well, let love be without hypocrisy. Remember what hypocrisy was in the Greek? To wear a mask. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. This is from the Greek word uh, philostorgos up here on the board. Be devoted from philos, lover, friend, and storga, natural or family love. Properly, a lover of family. That's what it means to be devoted. A lover of family. Okay. Um, who here has never gotten in a fight with a family member? A f- right? Some of you specialize in it. I mean, that's kind of what families do. But why are you still together? Why do you still come back together? Because God put you in that family. And now, when you talk about a spiritual family, the family of God, it's a much bigger issue. I mean, I hope, everyone, I, hope I speak for everyone here. We love our family, right? Wow. I love all of you. I'm just saying... You guys don't apparently love each other. What, did you guys fight over the quiche? Is there like a problem I need to know about? Don't you guys love this family? Well, why didn't you say so? What's wrong with you people? Didn't have your coffee? <laughs> Be devoted properly, a lover of family. Devoted love shown by family members is that special affection shared between members of God's family. People born again, divinely adopted, and serving the same Heavenly Father. And I got that from Help's Word Studies. They just said it so well, I just hogged it, stole it. But that's what it means. To net it out, to take all the Greek out, it's not important that you know those things anyways, those original words. We are trying to keep our beloved family together not tear it apart, right? And I'm talking about the family of God. We're trying to keep our family together, not tear it apart. Fair enough? We are interested, we are not interested in giving Satan an opportunity to fracture or divide the family. Will there be disagreements in the family? Of course. But God has given us the way out of temptation on that as well up here on the board, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Are you going to be tempted to throttle somebody? Probably. They stole the last half donut back there. It was your Jimmy Chocolate chocolate donut, you knew it, they saw you coming, and they took it anyways. They went like this. Oh, that's right. <laughs> You're going to be tempted. And Satan's going, he's right in your ear. They did that on purpose, you know. They did that to antagonize you. They ate your last donut. Hold your thumb. Let's go to a key coping strategy. (laughs) 
God, God forbid someone goes home and is angry all night over a donut, but it can happen. Ephesians 4.26, hold your thumb. Ephesians 4.26. People are weird, aren't they? How many times have you been cut off in traffic and it takes you literally the entire rest of the trip home to get over stewing? That used to happen to me every time I drove into Boston. Someone would cut me off, you know, say tweet, tweet, say hello with their, you know, finger. And I'd be like, yeah, you know, you're lucky I can't stop this car, mister. Visions of jumping on the hood and breaking the windshield, dragging them through, right? You know what I'm saying? Like Rambo. It's all ridiculousness. Ephesians 4.26, Satan's laughing the whole time. He's like, yeah, get him. Get him, Ed. What a moron. Be angry and yet do not sin. That's a distinction right there, isn't it? It's okay to have a righteous anger, but don't sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. You know it's the right thing to forgive, correct? And the one who doesn't do the right thing, it's what? A sin. Your conscience is saying, they're weak, you're strong. Let it go. You're like, I'm not going to let it go. Okay, then it's a sin. Pretty easy. So be angry. I don't like you just, you know, cut me off and then yelled at me. That's not cool. But I'm not going to sin over it. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. Let's face it, anger issues are one of the greatest areas of fracture in any family. I hear about that all the time. I'm like, man, what? Wait a minute, you haven't talked to your mother in a decade? You're, you mean you don't even talk to your sister anymore? What's the problem? Like, that's unbelievable. And that's exactly what happens. Unbelievers are famous for it. Holding grudges until the day they die. The devil sees that as awesome. Especially if you're a believer. And your family member is an unbeliever. Because now Satan has a thorn, a, a splinter between you. And every time, you know, maybe grace, maybe true love from you is going to reconcile, reaches out across the chasm and says, listen, I'm good. Satan says, hey, remember this splinter? Remember what they did to you? Do you remember? Not that long ago? Yeah, that's right. Another 10 years. And all you end up with at the end of it is regret. Let me give you amplified up here on the board. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be angry at sin. A lot of people don't know how to do that, but dwell on that. Be angry at sin, at immorality, at injustice, at ungodly behavior. Be mad at that stuff. The fact that it's even present in someone's life. Maybe you love that person. For me, the more I love a person, the more angry I get. At the sin itself, I feel like it's like how dare you can how dare you infect someone I love. I get so angry. I still love that person to pieces, but I get so angry at the sin itself. The you know what I'm saying? Is it just me? Yeah. Be angry at sin, at immorality, at injustice, at ungodly behavior. Yet do not sin. Do not let your anger cause you shame. Or, nor allow it to last until the sun goes down. And do not give the devil an opportunity to lead you into sin by holding a grudge or nurturing anger or harboring resentment or cultivating bitterness. Don't give him that opportunity. We all fail, right? I hate that there's evil in this world. I hate that there's sin. That's one of my, that's what, that's what I look forward to in heaven, is the absence of certain things. I know we're going to be in the presence of the Lord, it's going to be mind-blowing, right? But the fact that there's no more sin, there's nothing between you and I that causes divisions. There's nothing between the two of you that I can see that causes divisions. It's going to be so awesome. Back to our key point up here on the board. God sees the heart, but the world sees the choices we make. 
It's important that we understand the dynamics of living among other individuals as a part of God's plan. We ought never judge others for stumbling. Rather, we ought to focus on not being the cause. This is love. Go, to, go back to Romans 12.9 now. Romans 12.9. This is what love looks like. This is what motivates us. Right? This is what motivates us to fulfill the whole law. Because that's what love does. We don't have to focus on the rules like the religious folks. We're not bound that way. We're bound to love. Which means also that, you know, not every so-called rule is the same for everyone. I'm going to love you this way, but that person over there is going to love you that way. And they're both right before God. I'm going to treat you this way as your whatever in your life, as your father or something, or your pastor. I'm going to treat you this way, but this person is going to treat you this way. And both ways are right before the Lord. That's what love is. It's dynamic. And it fulfills the whole law. Romans 12.9 Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor up here on the board. Again, be devoted. Means a lover of family, specifically God's family. People born again, divinely adopted, and serving the same Heavenly Father, keeping that pristine. Verse 11, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering, in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You may say, well, God knows that I love others, and that's what counts. God knows. And to be accurate, you're not completely wrong, just shy of the high watermark that God expects of His children. If you say, well, God knows that I love others and that's what really counts. That's true. But you're shy of the high watermark. In other words, it's not just enough. Up here on the board, talking about love, God wants us not just to love in a way that He knows it, but to love others so that they know it. In other words, look at our message title. God sees the heart, right? But the world sees the choices we make. The world doesn't see your heart. I mean, isn't that what John wrote in, in uh, his first epistle? If you say you have love, but then you don't help somebody that has a need, what are you actually saying to them? So God wants us not just to love in a way that He knows it. I think a lot of people hide behind that mask. A lot of people hiding behind that. God knows I love. God knows I do this. God, and that's all great. And that's wonderful. But you know, even the angels can't see that. The angels who are rubbernecking to see what's going on in this theatron called life. God knows. Stop hiding. That's great. But we have to love others in a way that they know it. And we don't just do that in prayer. This is how we reveal and maybe even evangelize others. Think about, think about our Great Commission. Think about how much the Spirit's been 
teaching us about what that means in our life. How is we can't really hide out in a cave, be saved, and then run away. That that's not our lot. That somehow, some way, we ought to thirst to, to contribute to the spreading of the good news. How do we evangelize people? Well, I mean, why does anybody... Why is anybody attracted even to the message of the Gospel? Love is what attracts an unbeliever to our Savior. Love is. How are you supposed to evangelize someone effectively if you're hateful? If all they can see is anything but love. Starting with yourself. It's a, it's a paradox. It's... Um, it's bizarre because, and it's only, it's between them and the Lord. Sometimes I think people are saved, sometimes they're not, sometimes they're confused. But if you don't even love yourself, something that God deemed worthy to save, what do other people say? Man, you don't even love yourself. I don't want your life. Love is what attracts an unbeliever to our Savior. We're supposed to be lights. Even when a person is convicted by the Spirit that they are wretched and need a Savior, the reason they run towards Christ is that they sense His love for them, His desire to rescue them, to be their Lord and Savior. That's why people run to Christ. It's love. Remember, Jesus Christ has a servant's heart. A servant is the one who wipes our proverbial noses and bums when we can't do it ourselves. He's the one who says, it's true, you're a wretch. But if you're honest with yourself and with me, and you take my strong hand, I will lead you out of this wretchedness, out of this wretchedness. Trust me. That's what he says. Trust me. That is the message of the Gospel. That is the message of the Gospel. That's the essence of what we're supposed to be sharing with others. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Even as believers, let Him lead you to understanding. Isn't that what relationships are built on? Trust? That is the message of the gospel. And that is the witness we ought to bear towards others. Don't miss what the Spirit just said to you. It is a pearl among pearls. Christ is love. His name carries all of this with it. That's why it's a name above every other name. That's why we studied His name first in our ongoing series regarding good names. That's why we call it the Gospel of Jesus Christ. His name is important because He is love. So our end goal is to show others Christ and His precious love. Amen? All right, I'm going to show that video now, guys, and then I'll close in prayer after. This is our new pre-class song, by the way.
Hey! 
All right, let's bar heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for reminding us about how much you love us. And thank you for cradling us and keeping us and motivating us by this love. We love because you first loved us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. By the power of the Spirit. Amen.